Good morning, Redeemer. Good to be together again. This is the last of our series on the church, and uh, I'm excited about it. It's been a good series for me. I hope so for you as well. We're going to read uh, 17 verses. It's in your bulletin from Colossians chapter 3. You might turn there. You'll notice also in the sermon notes, the outline for the sermon is there as well, so you can uh, see where we're going in, in, the, in the sermon. Let's start reading in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You know, I'm convinced that one of the hardest things to do in life is to put it all together, to put things together, right? I mean, it's it's pretty easy to get one principle down and kind of hold to it. I mean, that's hard enough. But the really hard thing to do is take all the principles and put them together. When When I was young, I loved to build model airplanes. Anyone here like model airplanes? Yeah, you... You probably had experiences like I did. You know, uh, you'd spread the stuff out and you'd, you'd see the instructions and try and put it together. And what you came up with was very different than how you started, right? I mean, I, I remember feeling like Calvin talking to his pet tiger Hobbes about uh, after he spread out the model airplane instructions. Good grief, you need to know seven languages just to build this thing, right? <laughs> yeah, how hard that is. Take principles of the church and it's even harder. Living the Christian life is not intuitive. Our sin nature wars against God's ways. I remember having great and noble thoughts 
about serving the poor people of Guatemala. God had opened a door for us to go there and work in a malnourishment clinic. Right and good things needed to be done. The principles were simple. Love the people to whom we were sent with a team of eager, bright, motivated, young university students. We would go to hard places, not the easy places of Guatemala, no, the hard places where the land had been ravished by civil war and endemic poverty and slash and burn agriculture. We would show the people in the four weeks that we would live among them the love of God in the gospel of Jesus. It would be easy. My, oh, my. My, oh, my, how reality is different from my armchair noble thoughts. This this is how it occurred to me, how different and difficult it is to take the noble principles that we have and apply them. We had hiked into a village outside of Trapachito, about 40 miles south of the Mexican border. It was there I was given a revelation by God. I can pinpoint the exact hour. We had hiked in with backpacks. There were no roads. It was extremely primitive and poor. There was no running water. We slept on dirt floors in people's homes. And it was the rainy season, which meant every day, almost precisely at 2 p.m., the heavens opened. It wasn't so much rain as it was just sheets of water. And you could set your watch by it. Many of you come from rainy places with rainy seasons, monsoons, and you know how that is. It seemed that we were constantly wet and cold. Not only that, the village that we were living in viewed us with suspicion and superstition because the last visitors who had come to this village had come in at the same time when a a prize pig had died at one of the leading villagers' uh, uh, man's home. And not only that, the goats had stopped giving milk and the chickens weren't giving eggs. So somehow visitors were associated in their minds with disasters. We were told to be careful about the animals of the village. Now, unfortunately, we had a good-hearted but naive city girl named Anna with us. She took that to mean to treat the animals of the village as if they were pets. And she went about trying to comfort the animals of the village, which was just a little annoying, but not that big of a deal, until one day we started walking across the crest of a very sharp incline, And Anna looked down this hillside and saw a pig that had wrapped himself around the tree and was sitting, he was just sitting there, he was fine, he was sitting there, but Anna didn't think he was fine. She said, oh, the poor little pig's wrapped around the tree, I'm going to go get it. So she started to jump over this kind of ledge and uh, go rescue the pig, who actually didn't look like he needed to be rescuing. But anyhow, I said, Anna, stop, stop. I didn't, I didn't want her, if she did something wrong to the pig, to be the one to receive the wrath of the village. I'll, I'll, I'll do it, I'll do it. I climbed over the ledge. I started going down to get the pig. And uh, the pig saw me coming and panicked. And uh, it, it tried to go around the tree again, flipped over on its backside and was wiggling around. And it was choking. At this point, it became a disaster. It was awful. We were going to be seen as pig murderers in this village. And so somehow, I, it was very sharp. I was hanging onto a tree. I got the pig. Now, pigs are... Well, anyhow, it was strong. And... It, it was squealing, and it ran off back around the other way around the tree to, to unwrap itself, but somehow I got tangled up in the rope, and uh, the, the pig, I, I think even got a rope burn from it, but the pig took off, and I f- 
feet went up, backside went down into the pig muck and mud. You know, if you're around pigs, you grain gain greater sympathy for our Muslim and Jewish friends who understand that pigs are unclean animals <laughs> and began sliding down this hillside on the, on, on, in the mud to where my shoes uh, landed right in the pig slop. To add insult to injury, Anna at the top of the hill clapped her hands and said, oh, the pig's okay. <laughs> I'm not sure if she was referring to me or the... Because we look the same. And in fact, as I looked back up at Anna, I saw the pig looking down at me. He had accepted me as one of his own. And as if God was watching from heaven right then, the second hand swept the twelve, two o'clock, and the deluge came. There I sat. And I had this vision, this epiphany, this incredible realization. You know what? The principle is a long way away from the practice. (laughs) Our noble thoughts about how to do things are very, very far apart. The reality of living the Christian life is very different than our principles. You know, the fact is, you don't need to know that much about living a full and faithful life in Christ. It really only takes a thimbleful of Christian knowledge to live a lifetime of discipleship. It's just hard to put it together. It's hard to take those principles and put them together. The basic principles of the things I learned as a new believer are the same things I'm working on now. How to give my life compass, to get it pointed in the right direction. How to be involved in church. Remembering who I am so that I stay humble. Remembering remembering who Jesus is so that I stay in love with him. Understanding the gospel and how it centers me, it anchors me, it roots me in life, in all of life. How to forgive. How how to be forgiven. How to love. I just said something in two minutes that takes a lifetime to learn. The circumstances change. The circumstances get more important. But principles, the basic, simple principles are exactly the same. This morning, we want to talk about how to put the right principles together for church. We've been talking about church for a number of weeks, over the last seven weeks. And what the principles were are simple. They're easy. I can say them in seconds, but they're so hard to put together. That's because we work with people, right? It's like the young, ambitious pastor who said, you know, we could get a lot of ministry done around here if we didn't have to deal with all these people, right? (laughs) Well, that's what we're called to do. We take the biblical principles of church, we put them together in a way that serves God's aims on church, on earth, to further his glory. So let's put it all together. Part one, real wasta, verses one through four. Paul says, set your heart on the things above. He says, put your mind on the things above in verse two. 
And he stresses it by saying it in the negative. Get your minds off earthly things. When I was a young boy, my grandmother would tell me, get your mind out of the gutter. That's kind of a southernism, I think, from the southern part of the United States. Get your mind out of the gutter, boy. That's kind of what Paul was saying here. Get your mind off earthly things. Set your mind, set your heart on things above. But what does that mean? What does it mean to set our mind to things above? Does it mean take on a dreamy look, beautific smiles, you know, kind of like that? Play harps, sit on clouds? I, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. This command means two things primarily. First, Paul calls us to remember that Jesus, raised from the dead, is seated in glory. Glory unimaginable to you and me. It was a position of ultimate authority at the right hand of God the Father in both verse 1 and verse 3. Jesus is richer than Sheikh Muhammad and more powerful than Barack Obama. And the Bible says you can know him. You can know this man. You can know Jesus as a friend, not just shake his hand. You know, one of, one of the first Arab words I learned when we landed in Dubai 10 years ago was wasta. It's a great word, and I just love to say it for one, wasta. It means, who do you know? What's your influence? How much influence do you have by who do you know, roughly? We don't have a real good word to translate it, but it's a very powerful word, wasta. Well, according to this text, we've died with him and been raised with him, Jesus. And now our lives are with the one who's ascended to the very throne. The one in whom we live and move and have our being. And then one day, he will appear in glory and we will be with him. We will appear with him, Paul says in verse 4. That's wasta. (laughs) That's the ultimate wasta. The second thing it means is to set our mind, in setting our minds to things above, is to see other things around us in light of spiritual values, spiritual worth. We see things through our Father's eyes. We see things through the eyes of eternity. So you get your compass set. You put your heart and mind where you're going to be anyway. Jesus says where your heart is, there your treasure will be. So if you set your heart and mind on heaven, you are setting your heart and mind on where your treasure will be. You're not, you're not made to live on earth forever. We're all going to die. We're in Christ. We'll live with him forever. And life here on earth is just a dress rehearsal for the big stage. It makes setting your mind on earthly things seem kind of small, but... The new car, the big bank account, the fancy home. Those things seem small, almost silly. Those things which so many live for are passing away. They're fleeting. To live for them is to live for a vapor, a puff of smoke. Live your life for what is more real than what you see now. To live for Christ is to set your compass on him and his glory. And it's worth spending your whole life for. If Christ be true, if it's true he is who he said he was, if it's true that he did the things he did, I don't think you can be too heavenly minded. Will the world make fun of you for your aims, for your goals? Of course they will. Will the world 
see your life pursuits as worthless? Yes, they will. The world will no doubt quote to you C.S. Lewis that we're so heavenly-minded we're of no earthly good. But you know, that's a misquote from C.S. Lewis. Lewis said, many say we're so heavenly-minded there's no earthly good. But Lewis went on to say that we should remember that those who've done earthly good were usually heavenly-minded. And it's true. Will the world say to you there's a much better way to spend your life Of course they will. But so what? If Christ is God, their compass is off. If they've rejected Christ as God, they they cannot point to the right direction. If Christ be raised from the dead, their compass is off. If Christ one day will come in glory, as Paul talks about in this passage, their compass is way, way off. Remember, remember, Jesus never gave a promise that hasn't come true. He said he would be put to death on the cross and be raised again from the dead. Even, even his own followers thought he was crazy when he said it. They, they rebuked him, but it happened. Here's this itinerant carpenter who said he was going to establish his church on the truth of Peter's words. Peter's words were that he was the Christ. And it's happened. He said that this gospel we preach today would be preached all over the world. To to all evidence against the contrary, you sit here as a fulfillment of that promise. He said that if you followed him, you would know life and life abundantly. And it happens to this very day. Ask any member of this church. And he said, one day, he will appear in glory. He will arrive and be known. In other words, everyone would see him for who he was. He will appear in glory. And our lives, hidden his, will make us pretty happy about that. A number of you know, and I've talked about it a lot, that I was at the Chicago Marathon in October with my friend Wesley Career. The reason I keep talking about it, I suppose, is he, Wesley is probably the greatest athlete I'll ever personally know. Uh, he came in second in the Chicago Marathon, which is astounding. Uh, and the funnest thing for us was not only seeing Wesley cross the finish line, number two, of the, the thousands, the tens of thousands that raced in that race, it was being with him after the race. So Wesley took us and, and, and my family, who had kind of his adopted family in, in the U.S., he took us everywhere. We went back to the, we went back to the photo op, you know, where they, they took pictures and the video interviews for the TV stations. And, and uh, we went, we went uh, past the play, waited for him outside the drug testing stuff to make sure he hadn't been doping, you know, all that stuff. And at, at every point, security guards, little things in their ears, uh, Mr. Career, uh, is this man with you? He's talking about me? He said, he's with me right this way. Mr. Mr. Career, um, oh, he's with me. He's with me. Oh, okay. Mr. Career, uh, uh, no, no, he, he's with me. That's what it means to be hid in Christ, you see. You, one day, glory in this, one day, if you know him, if you've been raised with him, in verse 1, you will be hid with him. And there will be a lot... 
there will be people a lot scarier than someone with a thing in his ear. Listen, they, they will be much more terrifying than that. And they will look at you. They don't care about you. They care about him. And he says, oh, no. He's with me. He's with me. Listen. I don't know what would hold you back. I don't know what would hold you back from being hid in Christ. But this is a day that I promise will come. In the spiritual world, you want to be able to say, yeah, I'm with him. Well, we have good reasons. We have good reasons to want to be hidden with Christ in the following verses, verses 5 through 11. Let's, let's go through, let's walk through verses 5 through 11. Section 2, why we need to be hid in Christ. It, it could easily be subtitled, remembering, remembering to Gain Humility. There's reasons we need to be hid in Christ because in and of ourselves we're sinners. If we appear to God, appear before God without Christ, we're undone. And Paul says since that's true, that we're hid with Christ for future glory, kill those things. Kill those things which are of an earthly nature in, in verse 5. It doesn't have a place in our lives. These things war against a godly compass, against... Uh, uh, understanding of godly wasta. Christian, don't, don't act like your past didn't happen. Don't act like that. Don't sweep it under the rug. Remember Christ's work in your life. Remember it. You ran your own life badly in your former way of life. Paul says in verse 5, left to yourselves, you were filled with sexual impurity, evil desires, greed, God's wrath is coming for these things. When we really think about that and what's been done for us on the cross, it should keep us humble, humble, humble. When Paul says put to death, he means take your sin to the cross and nail it there. We have put aside our old life. That was your former way of life. It's gone. What about now? Paul talks about sins that plague us now. Anger, malice, slander, lying to one another. He lists some less obvious sins than the ones he started with, but no less dangerous, less obvious, but they still plague us. We need to kill those too. We have something positive to do as well. We don't just kill our sin daily. We put off the old, we put on the new in verses 9 and 10. It's like putting off dirty clothes and putting on new clothes. That's something we do every day. That's what we should do with our sin. Something we do in our spiritual life. We renew our minds. There's a sense here of constant, ongoing renewal. You don't think you deal with your sin one time, do you? I mean, it's not. Renewal happens over time. So if you're a follower of Christ and you have sins that plague you, and you do, we all do, don't despair. Trust Christ's work in your heart. Get people to help you with the sin in your life. Kill it like you found a scorpion in your bed. I think it was John Owen who said, some people treat sin like it's a naughty child, naughty but loved. Don't, don't treat sin that way. Treat it like you pull the sheets back from your bed and you find a tarantula there. What do you do? You don't, you, oh, a tarantula. No. You kill it. Set yourself to be renewed. 
And it will happen as you fight sin, killing it, determined to put on new life in Christ. Now, you do this with the same tools that we've been talking about or over the course of these, these weeks. Here, here's this thimble full of knowledge, I say, that, that takes a lifetime to live. I'm just going to recount the sermons over, that we've given over the last seven weeks. We talked about the study of God's Word, especially the Gospel, developing a culture of discipleship, taking our membership seriously in the church, sharing our faith, submitting to discipline in our lives by church leaders and godly friends, living as a genuine Christian, knowing what it means to have truly been born again. That's it. All those principles are so easy to say, right? They're difficult to put together. But give it time. And remember, for those of you who know Jesus, your life is hid with Christ. You are completely forgiven. And remember, remember, we don't do these things to try and gain his favor. We do these things because we love him and we want to love him more. We're doing this because we want our lives to be aligned with truth. We want to reflect his glory. We want to remember what he has done for us. You do not do these things to earn his love. If you are in Christ, he loves you perfectly. There is nothing you can do to make him love you more because he loves you perfectly. That's an astounding thought. What great comfort. For those in Christ, he loves you fully without regret, without limit, without breaking point. Well now, you can't put on the new self if you don't know Christ first. And if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ, you are not a follower of Christ, we are thrilled you're here. You are so welcome. Now, perhaps for you, as you read this passage, you, you find your sin there. Maybe those things deep, deep in yourself, you recognize... That's me. That's sin. That's me. And suddenly you're you're hearing, maybe you think you're not hearing right, but you think you're hearing that there is this offer to know God even though you're a sinner. A personal sinner, not just the sins of the world. We're talking about you. And that God is willing in his loving kindness to take away your shame and the stain of horror of sin, and the judgment of sin, and forgive you totally, completely. Maybe maybe your heart leaps at that. I'm here to tell you, Jesus is willing to ransom you from the penalty of your own sin, and completely forgive you, to take you as one of his own children, so that you would be hid with him when he judges the nations. It's freely offered. It's free, but it's not cheap. It comes to us at great price. The death of God's beloved son on the cross, where he bore our sins. It requires no work from you, just your faith. Now for you, does that sound maybe too good to be true? 
Remember how your, your mother warned you about things that were too good to be true. And I'm here to tell you also there's some fine print. There's a condition. It requires that you give your life fully to Him. You must turn from your former way of life. You must put your complete faith and trust in Christ. Now, now if you've come here with a clear sense of your sin, you know that's a good deal, right? (laughs) If you're here and you're sitting here and you're very aware of your sin, you would gladly hand over your life for forgiveness. Gladly. That's why sinners... In Jesus' day, the tax collectors, the prostitutes flocked to Jesus. They understood the deal. They didn't mind the fine print. They got that part. The others? Well, they believed a lie about themselves. They thought they weren't that bad. That is, they believed their own righteousness before God. They were self-righteous. Right? Ultimately, The ultimate self-righteous person who is the one who stands before God and says, I'm trusting on my own righteousness for you to allow me into heaven. I am trusting in my own righteousness for you to allow me into your presence. Oh, oh, my friend, if that's you, if you think, if you think your righteousness matters before the holy and living God, let me tell you, I am here to tell you. There is going to be a rude awakening on that day, and that day will come. Jesus promised that that day would come. And I can tell you now, before you get there, that deal has been rejected. He's not impressed with our righteousness. The only righteous one that he's impressed with is Jesus. That offer, that offer he takes, all others are rejected. You must be hid in Christ. You know, it's... Embarrassing to say that once I thought I'd done God a good favor by giving him my life. (laughs) So laughable. I thought I'd made a good impression on him and that's why he picked me. The only impression I made on the Son of God was not my skills and wit, but the marks of his scars on his hands. That's what I brought to the table, my sin. Section 3, how we look as the people of God, verses 12 through 17. We'll notice here that Paul, after talking about being hidden with Christ, tells them, much much like what we looked at last week in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, that they are chosen people. They have been chosen by God, dearly loved. And uh, those things are often linked, that we're chosen and we're loved which is a description of the church as well, and then instructs them in our life together. So so he's saying, if you put off yourself, you've put on the new in Christ, you're hid with Christ. This is what life together looks like. Notice these are not things we, most of them, are not things that we can't obey without each other. We need each other. We can't do these things alone. We can't forbear if there's no one there, right? These these things are about community. So the rest of the passage really is about how we treat others as believers. So he says, then, that is, we've got our minds on things above, we're killing the old sin nature, then this is how we dress. This is how we get dressed in verses 12 through 14. Clothe yourselves 
with these wonderful things. Hearts that feel for others. That's compassion. Spirits that put up with each other and not get put out. You know, I think, I think getting put out is one of my greatest sins. I'm just going to tell you, confess this right in front of you all. I've gotten to this place where I don't, you know, I don't blow up and shout and put my fist through walls like I did when I was young. <laughs> I remember being so angry with my mother, I literally put my fist through a wall. And my father was there, and it was a bad day. <laughs> I don't do that anymore. Uh, for one, my bones would break. <laughs> I'm too old. But I get put out, you know, I get put out with stuff. And it's so sinful, it's wicked. We have spirits that forbear in love. Clothe yourselves with these wonderful things. Forgiving natures. Most of all, love, he says, that binds us all together. This is what our community looks like. And in verses 15 through 70, be this kind of person, peaceful, Christ-centered, thankful, members of one body. You identify that you are part of a whole. You're not just a lone ranger out there living your Christian life. We're called to be people of the Word, people of the Spirit, people who live for Christ. We sing. No matter what we do, we do it for Jesus. And where do we live this out? Where, where do we do these things? Well, well, lots of places, of course, lots of places. But primarily, the church. Primarily, the church. We live this out together. We're one body in verse 15. You know, I I grew up in a tradition that repeated the Nicene Creed. Perhaps you did too. I said it every week. I had no idea what it was talking about. None. You know, I just recited it. Maybe you did too. Maybe you can even say it. One holy, universal, and apostolic church. You know that? Or some people say one holy, universal, uh, Catholic, and apostolic church, right? A little c, Catholic. Universal. It means universal. Well, now I realize that's right. And it's from this passage. One. The Holy Spirit makes us one in Christ in verse 15. Holy, striving to look like Jesus in his holiness in verse 12, where we're hid with Christ. Universal, we're from all nations. That means we're one in Christ across all boundaries Uh, in verse 11. it, it, It actually looks like Redeemer. It looks like us, people from everywhere, from all stations, come together for God. And we're apostolic. We follow the teachings of the apostles. That is, the words they wrote are our authority. In verse 16, the message of Christ dwells in us. And when we do this, when we are one holy, universal, apostolic church, we give great glory to God. Great glory to God. He brings fantastic spiritual blessings. And I want to give you some secrets about what it looks like to pull it all together, to take the principles and pull it all together. Now, I'm going to give you four things which are... The bad things, okay? I'm going to give you the bad, the bad ways that people do this first, all right? And then I want to talk about what it really looks like. Okay, four things, quickly, about the big picture of what the church is not. Or maybe better put, four mistakes that many people, maybe even most people, make about the church. Number one, pragmatism versus principle. Pragmatism versus principle. Pragmatism is just what we think is right, what seems best for our culture, what will advance our aims, what seems right to a person. Unfortunately, this has a bad history in the church. People are always trying to improve the church, to enhance the church. And so they apply earthly principles that may sound right and good at a time, will end well uh, for a time, 
but eventually goes bad, often becomes a tradition that loses the meaning, but not the practice. The practice actually becomes more important than the principle. Biblical principles, on the other hand, thoughtfully applied, will serve to keep the church healthy and strong. Number two, growth over depth. There is a lure of rapid and bigger growth. It's a strong temptation for church leaders. And primarily because it's been shown that you can make a church really big. There's a couple simple things that you do. You make the church look all the same. Less conflict. Everyone agrees. You can stop talking about the hard things that Jesus calls us to do, like silly notions of picking up your cross and following him. You talk about how God's going to give you lots of good stuff on earth. Money and privilege and wealth and power. That'll grow a church big. But that's not the Bible. God's call to the church is primarily about gospel growth through a culture of discipleship, not not growth for growth's sake. Growth, unbridled, is called cancer in our bodies. And it has a similar destructive path in the church. The church is harmed when leaders of churches make decisions to grow over decisions to live Colossians 3 deeply. Number three, confusing the call to the Christian with the call to the church. If you think that the call to the individual Christian is the same as the call to the church, you've made a big mistake. You will overwhelm the church with too many things to do. Don't make the easy mistake of thinking that what Christians are called to do is also what the church is meant to do. Here's an easy example. I'm not called to love your wife for you. You are, right? There's an easy one. There's others. You may have a personal call to the poor. And we bless you for that. We honor you for that. But that doesn't mean that your call to the poor is our call for the poor in the same way. There there are many examples of this. Be careful that you don't make the mistake of confusing the call to the Christian for the call to the church. Four, and finally, keep the gospel central. The gospel is easily assumed And once it's assumed, it's easily lost. We must avoid the pressure to think there are other messages more important than the gospel. If we lose the gospel, we are adrift. We are adrift. So four principles. You might want to talk to me about those later. They're they're packed with stuff. But let me tell you what the church should do. do you know what I mean when I talk about irreducible parts? Actually, it's an it's a interesting discussion more in biology right now than, than about church. But uh, an irreducible part is something that, if taken away, makes it not work, not be the same thing. And that's why a mousetrap is considered made of irreducible parts. So every part in a mousetrap is essential, Right? So you, you take away the spring, it's no longer a mousetrap. You take, you take away a little bar uh, that, you know, breaks the poor little creature's neck, uh, that 
It's no longer a mousetrap. You, know, you take away the platform, a little piece of wood on the bottom, the thing that you set the cheese on, the trap that actually springs, the, the, all are re- irreducible parts. Take away any one thing, you no longer have a mousetrap. That's why it's so hard to build a better mousetrap, right? Because it's made of irreducible parts. So I want to give you the irreducible parts of church. That if you take any one of these things away, the church is no longer the church. You have four things. What the church is, what the church does, the mission of the church, and why church is here. What the church is, number one. The church is a gathering of baptized, born-again believers who covenant together in love to meet regularly under the authority of the scriptures and the leadership of elders to form the visible image of the gospel. That's it. Two, what the church does. Churches only do a couple things. They preach the word. They sing. They pray. They practice the sacraments of baptism and communion. We'll do both of those today. There are some who would say that the third discipline of the church is church discipline. That is, making sure that members of churches act like they're believers. Regardless, third, the mission of the church. There is one mission of the church. Our mission is the Great Commission, to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything Christ has commanded. That's it. Why the church is here, fourthly. There is one reason we exist. One reason. We exist to worship God and ultimately to give Him glory. Now, understand, there are all kinds of other things churches can do. There's other things churches can elect to do. We have men's meetings. We distribute money for the poor. We have youth programs, kids programs. You don't have to do those things to be a church. We think they meet the aims, the call of the principles of the church. But, but those things I've just listed, those four points, are the things that must be done to be church. So if you take any, any part away from that, it's no longer the church. It's something else. It diminishes the church. Now, it sounds pretty easy, right? It's, it sounds like good grief. If we could just do those four things, if we could just kind of get those in our mind and print, put those principles together and just work out of those principles, it would be easy, right? Yeah, but... Remember my story about the pig. There's lots of things that can go wrong between the noble principle and the actual application. But keep in our minds that a diminished church results in a diminished gospel. For we are the image of the gospel. Redeemer. Redeemer. I think we're doing it. I think we're doing it. That's the exciting thing for me about our church. When I look at these principles, I see them being applied and put together. I think there's one thing that you need to make sure that you're doing, and that is put on love. The thing that holds us all together. Give loving spirits, loving attitudes towards your church. Speak of 
our church, of Redeemer with love. Speak of one another with love. If, if there's one thing that we need to take hold of to make sure that the principles continue, put on love. And as we do, we become the visible image to the world of Jesus. It's our belief that as we put these principles together, we are building something that will be a healthy church long after we're gone from this place and hopefully long after we're gone from this world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we want to love your church because you love the church. You call the church your bride. You're enamored with your church. And you've invested at great cost to yourself for the church. And who would we be, oh God, to tell you that that's not important? Who would we be, oh God, to think that what you've purchased and what you've called us to do and what you've commanded for us is unimportant, so distracted by earthly things. Lord, we would acknowledge our opportunity for wasta in heaven. We thank you for that. So, Lord God, give us grace to put on the new clothes that allow us to live in love together. Thank you, O God, for raising up Redeemer. And even as I speak this morning, see the faces of people who've come together in unity for one holy, universal, and apostolic church. Pray in Jesus' name.